Good afternoon, and Mira, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to share what we do. So as Mira has mentioned, I'm from South Africa. I live in Johannesburg, which is one of our main cities in the country, the most populated city. And I head up this organization, which is called the Becca Sisa Center for Health Journalism. And I know it's hard to listen to people if you don't know what they do, so I'm going to talk about other stuff later, not just about what we do, but let me tell you a little bit. So as Mira has mentioned, Bekesisa means to scrutinize. In South Africa, Zulu is the largest language, the most spoken language. And if a Zulu patient wants to go to the doctor and wants the doctor to check them out really well, they will ask the doctor to Bekesisa them. So that's where we got our name from. And we specialize in in-depth health and social justice journalism. We don't really do news unless it's really exclusive or an investigation that we revealed something. We try and, uh, try and focus on features and analysis and we try and make the news meaningful to our, our readers. And we syndicate copy. The stuff that we write, we publish on our own website, but then we also syndicate it to three publishing partners in South Africa, which is the Mail and Guardian. It's a weekly newspaper. And two online outfits, the Daily Maverick and News24, which is the largest um, online publication in Africa. And we also publish our copy in The Guardian in the UK. And then we don't just report. We do trainings and public discussion forums because we need to generate income. And um, so why would a place like us exist? Why would there be a bigger CISO or a small organization doing social justice journalism? So as someone who's so well-known here in Oxford, Alan Rusbridger wrote in his breaking news book, was for the first time in modern history, we facing the prospect of how societies would exist without reliable news. Now in the field where I work, which is in online and in print journalism, and where I know many of you, especially of the fellows work, the economic model has collapsed, right? And we can no longer make a living from advertising income. So in an effort to cope with these things, there's lots of things that newspapers are trying out. Some have subscription models like the New York Times, there's the Guardian's membership model, and some try to increase their digital advertising, but it doesn't bring in enough funds, so we have sponsored events. And then the other thing that many have tried is donor-funded journalism. And that is why Bekesisa exists, basically because of the collapse of this economic model. <coughs> there has been donor funding, and we started off at a newspaper that really struggled in 2013, the Mail and Guardian. There was money for almost nothing, and definitely not for a health reporter. So when Bekesisa started there, there was no health reporter. It wasn't really reported on. And we then um, found donor funding from the German government, from GIZ, and we were able to appoint three staff members. It was myself and two junior reporters fresh from university. And it was a sort of a private-public partnership model where the Mail and Guardian covered half of the costs and the donor covered half, but it was sort of in-kind contributions from the Mail and Guardian, not really hard cash. And the idea was to mainstream health and social justice reporting. So to not make it a, a soft issue, to make it a mainstream issue that can be on the front page of the newspaper. So we don't see health as a medical issue only. We report on it from a political perspective, or we do corruption, but also from an injustice perspective, which lends itself to a lot of narrative and, and long-form journalism. 
So when we started off, almost no one read us. We only had 3,500 unique page views a month, and we were a section of the Mail and Guardian's website. <coughs> we didn't have any social media of any kind. And then three years later, when we got more funding, we registered as a non-profit. So we became an organization within an organization, which can be quite a complex process. But it's also quite complex to, for donors to donate to a for-profit organization. So it's easier if you're a non-profit. And in that same year, we, web, we launched our own website, Vegasisa uh, website. So our stories appeared on the homepage of the Mail and Guardian. But if a reader clicked on it, it would redirect to our website. And by June this year, we had reached 150,000 unique page views a month, up from 3,500 six years ago. And our donor funding had increased eightfold and we had increased our staff from three members to 16 permanent and, and, free, and freelance members. And when um, in, in July this year, when we left, I'll tell you when, why we moved on, we were the largest desk in the Merlin Guardian. Imagine having a health desk that's larger than the political desk and the investigations desk. And it's really because of donor funding. But in July this year, we took an even bigger step we moved into our own office and we started to cover all our own costs. So what we got from the Mail and Guardian when we were based there was free office space and free phones and free internet. So those things we then had to start to not just cover ourselves but manage ourselves. It takes quite a bit of time to sort out the lights in the office and the things that you never, never had to do before. And we now, as I've mentioned, have four publishing partners. So we don't make our copy available for free for anyone to use. We have publication agreements, and when we give the copy to a partner, it's exclusive copy. Why would we do that? Because you can make so many more demands if you give someone exclusive copy. So we, for instance, in our publication agreements, we have agreements where we would like to have, have a story in their newsletter of the day. We can say how many social media we want, how many tweets we want, Want. you know we can negotiate for placement for good placement on the website if we just made our copy for free available to anyone you can't make those sort of demands and as a result of this within two months after we left our audience has grown to 400,000 <coughs> page views per month so it was a really um, it was a exhausting move but it has really paid off for us and you may ask why, why would you leave a newspaper, the mothership that incubated you? In our case, it's really because the media has changed so much. So the Mail and Guardian has a weekly Friday edition, a newspaper, and print is simply no longer that important to us. And because of the changing online environment in South Africa, we, our aim is to reach decision makers and policy makers through our stories and the Mail and Guardian was the prominent publication in 2013 when we started for that audience but because of the changing online environment many more publications started to reach that audience and we wanted to tap into that. The other reason is because we wanted to build our own brand. So imagine if you become a really large desk within a small organization and you have a very specific idea of what you would like to become and if that is not always aligned with a newspaper's larger brand, you do need to start moving on so that you have that freedom to build it. 
So what type of journalism should we do, an organisation like Becca the digital news report of the Reuters Institute actually summarizes three issues really well that we try to address in our journalism. The one is trust. So it shows that less than half of the people who choose specific news outlets as they, that they would like to consume trust it. And that the news media has become much better at breaking news than making it meaningful to audiences and explaining what the news means, and that more people start to avoid the news because of the negative effect that it has on their moods and because it makes them feel disempowered. They don't know what to do with the information, whether it would make any difference to their lives. So yes, what we try to address that. To address trust, we do evidence-based journalism. Now, you would think that all journalism should be evidence-based, but evidence-based journalism is a very specific type of journalism. <coughs> so it's journalism where you involve peer-reviewed research in your reports. So for instance, when we need to quote a statistic, if we want to say how many people in South Africa has HIV or depression, we wouldn't go and quote a health organization because we wouldn't trust their figures. We would want to go back to the original survey or the original peer-reviewed research and that requires us to train our reporters in understanding methodology so that they can judge whether it's credible or not and it involves when we edit pieces to go and go back to the studies ourselves it's really time consuming and um, to go and double check if the results were interpreted correctly. The second thing that we do is we try to make news meaningful. So we try and not just cover what happens in the news, but to take that and either give it a human face and make it understandable to people or to analyze what is happening. So one of the most controversial issues in South Africa and the field of health at the moment is universal access to healthcare. We are in the process of introducing a system like the NHS. It's not the same model, but it's also universal access to healthcare. It's called the National Health Insurance. There's a small middle class in South Africa, 16% of the people can, in, can afford health insurance. The rest of the country is reliant on a public health care system and the government and the public health care system is not very functional and the government wants to, to make legislation that would take the contributions of the middle class to health insurance and rather um, let it go to, to healthcare in general, that is then redistributed among everything. So when we do stories about that, we will try to analyze that and get opinion makers to write pieces about it and help them develop it rather than just reporting on what's happening to it. And the third thing we do is solutions journalism to address avoidance and feeling of disempowerment. I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is because I know not everyone is, is familiar with that. But one of the consequences of doing these three things is that we produce fewer stories. It means that we can only produce about three stories a week because when we edit, we spend between eight and 12 hours editing per piece of a journalist, four of that would be fact-checking, going back to studies and checking if the methodology has been quoted correctly. It will go through two edits. Our deputy editor will edit the science and the evidence, and I will edit the narrative. And it's only then that a piece can go out and, and, and really work well. We have, however, found that 
the readers you, you lose by not having quantity is made up for by the evergreenness of the piece, if it's a sort of a timeless piece, if you spend a lot of time on it. So who has heard of solutions journalism? There's more people than I expected. So for the, those of you who have not um, been introduced to solutions journalism, it's sometimes easier to explain it by saying what it isn't. And what it's not, it's not a piece that you write about a problem and then you list five solutions at the end. It's not that. And it's not positive journalism. Um, it's, not, it's not a story that's always positive. So it really is actually something that's more work than ordinary journalism that you've gotten, that most people do. You do not just talk about the problem, you evaluate a response to a problem. So a practical example would be going, say if you wanted to report on rape, to go to a project that deals with it and talk about the problem, but then evaluate what this project does and whether it works and whether it doesn't, and perhaps compare it with other projects or other parts of the world. And it's very often character-driven, narrative journalism really gets involved in it, and it focuses on effectiveness, not good intentions, so there must be evidence to see whether what the, what the project does works or not, and it always has to discuss the limitations or the challenges, what doesn't work. And the idea of it is to provide insight that others can use. To give an example there, on that side of the slide, is a story about sex work and how it gets legislated. That's an example of a solutions journalism story. It was 5,000 words. And we looked at the effect, two of the biggest social justice and human rights issues that sex workers face from a health perspective is high HIV infection rates and gender-based violence because of the nature of their jobs. And Evidence around the world shows that if you criminalize sex work, it has no effect on the number of sex workers that you will have in a country. What it really only does is it drives it underground. So in South Africa, sex work is illegal. In Amsterdam, in Holland, it is legal. And we compared the HIV infection rates and the gender-based violence between the two countries and looked at the effect of legislation. And it was really interesting. Did you know that in Amsterdam, the sexual transmitted infection rates are lower among sex workers than the general population? And it's really as a result of something being legal. Why do you think there's high HIV infection rates among sex workers? Not just because lots of sex. Because... And why do you think there's lots of gender-based violence? Because you can't report it, right? You, you, you're having an illegal profession, and if you have high HIV infection rates, because you can't access health clinics, because you're scared to, of getting arrested or being discriminated against. So in Amsterdam, there's special sex worker health clinics where people talk very openly about specific sex worker needs. And in South Africa, we have very high HIV infection rates in any case, and... Sex workers are reluctant to go for HIV testing and to go, if they know they're positive, to go for HIV treatment because of the discrimination they experience. And my country is on the sort of cusp. The ruling party is supporting the decriminalization of sex work. The Justice Department isn't. The Health Department is, but not publicly. So it was a really great way of comparing what's happening where, and this is not a story about whether sex work is right or wrong. It's about what type of regulation do 
we need to control the health consequences of it. And it's now a story that's used by quite a few policymakers and um, NGOs in the country to look at this type of evidence. So the story was told around the lives of these two people. So why? Why would you do solutions journalism? Because people have done studies on it and some of the evidence is contradictory but one of the pieces of evidence that comes up all the time is that when people read a solution story, they spend more time, they engage for longer with a story. A recent study by the Solutions Journalism Network, they worked with a US newspaper, Desert News, found that people spend about 25% longer, they engage that much longer with a story when it's a solution story. Now, in real terms, that translates to 30 seconds, right, And that, in this case. But those of you who work in online media would know that 30 seconds is quite a chunk of engagement when it comes to online. And the other piece that is um, quite consistent is that it, um, piece of evidence is that it gives people a sense of agency and it results in more constructive discussions after a story. So instead of ending up with a who's to blame for this problem, you end up with someone discussing what can be done about the problem. Those two pieces of evidence is quite consistent in the research that has been done. What is not so consistent is whether it strengthens trust. There has been a little bit of evidence at the Seattle Times and whether it shared more. Some studies show that people don't go to another story after they've, they've read the solution stories. Some people show that they actually sort of share it more on social media. But there's also some evidence that shows that people are more likely to click on a solutions headline. So an example would be, so if you do a story about depression, a solutions headline will be something along the lines of, this is what this, study, this city does to cope with depression. A non-solutions headline would be one out of three people in this city suffers from depression. And they, um, the University of Texas um, had exactly the same story on the Huffington Post and just changed the headline and it showed that more people tended to click on the solutions headline. So I want to show, tell you about one story that we've done that has had quite an impact, that had some solutions aspects in it. About two-thirds of what we do are solution stories, not all of them. So who has heard of traditional circumcision and initiation? So in my country, that is a very significant part of culture. And in one part, in the eastern part of the country, we have um, a, a large ethnic group that tours us and you go through traditional circumcision if you're a man as part of a rite of, um, of passage to manhood. And sometimes there are problems because what traditional circumcision entails is two things. The one is living in the mountains for a while when you get educated by older men on how to be a man. But the first part of it is to have the foreskin of your penis cut. Sometimes it's just a little bit of it, sometimes it's more. And the nursing of this wound is often a problem. So Every in the Tosa culture or in the Eastern Cape, it's generally in school holidays, in the June holidays or the December holidays, and often there are some deaths as a result. It's obviously not everyone, but the government tries and regulates it and to make it safer. But in this particular year that this story was done in 2013, there were a lot of deaths as a result of initiation. And we took a bit of a different angle from other media houses. Most people covered the deaths, 
But there is another complication. There are many men who survive, but they end up without a penis. Like the penis literally falls up, or they have half a penis. And you could imagine the complications around that living in society and not being able to tell anyone. So we found some of those men and we interviewed them and we interviewed their doctor. And the idea was to see what could be done to make the safer. Could medical male circumcision help to make traditional circumcision safer? Now that's easier said than done. Medical male circumcision is a procedure that's becoming increasingly common in Africa because research has shown that it reduces a man's chances of contracting HIV significantly by about 60%. And it's also just removing the foreskin of the penis. That's a lot of cells that attract HIV that lives in the foreskin. But the challenges around this is culture. That you can't just take a Western procedure and impose it on people who have had a culture for years and years. So it's not as easy as it sounds to get doctors and traditional doctors to, to work together. So we wrote a 5,000 word feature on this and here is what the concern, what the impact was. So after about a week, within a week after the publication of the story, the doctor who was interviewed made 120 copies of the story, it was four pages long, and took it to the province's health department and gave it to all the everyone who's in a position who can make a decision. And they were very, very upset, and um, the health department and hospital then put pressure on traditional healers to find solutions, because there had never been meetings before between the traditional healers and the, and the Western doctors. And then within two weeks after publication, the traditional healers agreed to meet an organization that was specifically dealing with medical male circumcision in the area. And two months after publication, six medical teams were dispatched that December, because the story was published towards the, the end of um, August, to, um, to help with circumcision. And the doctors who worked with circumcision, they, their comment was from the hospital, because they get the injured initiatives. <coughs> this initiation represents the closest the Eastern Cape has come to integrating male circumcision with traditional circumcision, which has been something that was struggled with for years. But then this went further. The National Health Minister then read the story, and the doctor quoted in the article was then flown into Pretoria, which is our capital city, to write an, and asked to write an advisory report, and he was requested to, to make policy input into new regulations that the government then put in place. And in 2014, the government then started to work on a new policy for safety during initiation, and that included more stringent rules for regis registering initiation schools, and also more opportunities for doctors and traditional circumcisers to work together. And in Ponderland, which is the place where the story was done, some of the boys are now allowed to get medically circumcised first and then go into the mountains for, to, to, to spend time with elders. And my favourite impact of this was that the University of the Witwatersrand, which is one of South Africa's largest universities, wrote a play based on this story with direct quotes from the initiates. And this play was then performed by our National School of the Arts, which is a high school for children who would like to specialise in arts forms. And it was taken around the country to be performed to make initiation safer. And the doctor brought in two of the two initiates and on whose 
story, this, this play was based, and they could see it and they could be validated because they couldn't tell people their story, really. And in December 2014, we can't claim credit for this, but we can say that we helped create an environment to talk about this. In December 2014, South Africa performed the world's first penal transplant for someone who lost his penis during initiation, and it was completely successful, functional, there's full sexual function, it's a, it's a, a guy, a, a man in a, in a functional relationship. So that was something that, um, it took a lot of time to do this story, but there really was impact that, that paid off. Lastly, you know, we are donor-funded, so I thought I could tell you about the good and bad of donor-funded journalism. So there is no doubt that it gives you more resources. Where would you be an organization as small as us and have two people who can edit stories? And today, where you in, in the media, you would have one editor who has to look after 20 reporters, and there's no way that the same level of fact-checking and story development can be done. And something we really have access to because of donor funds is travel. That's something that's cut first in a media house when there's not money. You can't travel and you have junior people. So we're in a position where we can appoint senior people and we can, um, we can travel. Um, and that is really something that helps us to tell stories about rural areas as well. In South Africa, some people you know, would argue that donor funded funding skews you know, editorial, what people focus on, not within the organization necessarily, but broader. And South Africa has done that a little bit, but in a good way, in my opinion. There's far more social justice reporting than ever before. There are seven social justice reporting organizations, which, is which would have been unheard of five, ten years ago. Why were there none of them? Because, you know, it doesn't make money. It's not necessarily always front page <coughs> stories. But now that is the sort of thing that donors like investing in and I think it's a very, it's something that in a country like mine really addresses inequality and deep-rooted issues that we need to look at. The thing about donor-funded journalism, for me, that is not such, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but it changes your job description entirely. It's very, very different working for a donor-funded media organization than in a commercial newsroom. And the biggest thing for me as an editor is that I have to be a CEO as well. I have to find the money for this organization. I have to raise the funds. I have to edit. I have to manage people. And on top of that, you also need to have space in your head for strategy. So all the things that a normal newsroom would have a CEO or a, you know, a managing editor, you don't necessarily have until you've grown enough. Our reporters don't just report, they have to track the impact of their stories, which I don't think reporters in commercial newsrooms do. And they also do things like upload their stories and think up their own social media and that sort of thing. Um, something that is a new field of academic research is impact tracking that never existed before. So five years, no, ten years ago, or, you know, before people started to do very extensive online reporting. There was no data available. Even advertisers ask for data now. You could tell an advertiser, these are my ABC figures, this is the amount of people reading my newspaper. Now advertisers have the power, right, for online advertising because they can ask for the data in return. How many people clicked on my ad? You can't just tell them this is my monthly page views or monthly visitors. They can ask you how long did they spend on that ad. And donors have to know that their money is used well. 
So they ask you for all kinds of things. Every quarter, I have to report on the number of page views, visitors, time, active engagement that was spent on a story of every single story that we did. In addition to that, I have to report on how many, by how much did our Twitter followers increase, our Facebook, our Instagram. But more than that, I have to report who retweeted us, because my donor wants to see that we reach policymakers. So they want to know that the health minister or the head of the health department or heads of NGOs retweeted us, which means that you automatically have to put so much more energy into your social media or those people will never retweet you, right? And when they start to do that, you have to start to interact with them because you can't just have them make comments and not engage with them. So that is why um, the Bureau for Investigative Journalism here in the UK is the first media organization in the world that now has an impact editor. Um, that all she does is track impact. And um, I think it's fair to say that impact tracking has become as much work as doing the story itself. And that it's no longer something that you should just do after a story. You should actually, many people argue, plan the impact before when thinking where you're going to publish it. The other challenge of donor-funded journalism is grants. Grants are normally for a year or two, and it's very hard to plan around that if you don't know if it's going to get renewed. And when you offer people contracts, you can only offer them short-term contracts. And it's hard to develop people's careers if you don't know what money or funds you will have access to afterwards. But it seems to me that donors are becoming more open to longer term contracts, but longer would mean five years or three years, it wouldn't mean ten years. And then of course it's very hard to manage different donors at the same time. They all have different objectives, they have different timelines, this one funds you for six months, this one does it for three years, and they all want their own reports. So I think if we want to make donor funding, funded journalism sustainable, donors also have to find a way to align reporting mechanisms, because it becomes really, really onerous on an organization. And lastly, here are five things that we've done that might help if you come from a media startup. We've developed a tracker so that we don't have to contact publications every week after we've published a story. They can get irritated. It's also a lot of work for us. So we have a tracking code that they upload and um, along with our story, and then we can see on our side how many people read it. Also, when they read it, it's quite addictive if you see you know, the timeline exactly in real time when they read it. It really has helped us, but the downside of a tracker like this is um, everywhere around the world, whoever has a tracker like this, it can only measure page views. It can't tell you engagement, it can't tell you unique page views. It can really only tell you how many times that page was visited. There's a lot of sense in investing in a newsletter. We used to have a weekly newsletter, and we then changed it to a per-story edition of a newsletter. As a result of it, our subscription rate at which people subscribe to us doubled. It's, we personalized it. So you could just as well not have a newsletter if you automate it. Um, it's what the research shows at the moment. So we started with a little bit that says, um, of the author of the story, why this matters, and the reporter would have to write a bit. And um, we then also sort of welcome the new subscribers and we tell them about something that we did that week. One of the publications in South Africa, the Daily Maverick, that has a very successful membership model, 
set, uh, sent, uh, sent out questions before they started with this and asked, what do you want most in return for you know, giving us money to be a member? And the top thing was we wanted to get we want to get to know your reporters and we want to interact with journalists. So that little bit at the top of our newsletter seems to be working really well. And then explain it. Um, I think Rasmus tweeted this morning, and also you, Mira, that the main story, the most visited story on the New York Times this morning, was about the Kurds in Syria and Turkey, explaining what is a Kurd and why why does Turkey not like the Kurds and um, we have found the same in our figures, that if you do a long-form story, if you just do a video after that, it explains one aspect, a two-minute video or a two-minute podcast, it really gets a lot of hits. And you can really, we aim to reach policymakers. When we do explain like that, we aim to reach my mother. And the policymakers still read it. People have so much information that they need to consume that they don't have time to figure out everything. We have an engagement officer. Who of you in a commercial newsroom has an engagement officer? Which I think is sort of like the more junior version of an impact tracker. The impact tracker is now the new thing. And it has helped us so immensely because we have someone who can attend to newsletters. Um, she also attends to our social media, schedules it. But more than that, with the National Health Insurance in my, in my country, we've put out a survey because you need to be interactive now, right? And she could help with getting the responses for that and sending it to the correct people. And um, we also have critical thinking forums, so she can help to organize it, invite guests, um, she can live tweet for us. Um, it, it is a really, really good investment for us to increase, increase how much audiences can engage with us. And lastly, less and niche is more. It really helps to do fewer stories that are better in the end. Um, quality and specialization is more important for your brand than quantity, by far. And I think The Guardian also decreased its quantity by a third, and then the number of visitors increased by a third, right? Quality is what people want today. They want news that, they want stories that makes the news meaningful. They're not so much into just the news. They can get that from anywhere. And I think if you, um, and you are more able to make something meaningful if you're a specialist in a certain area, whether that is investigative journalism or health and social justice journalism or multimedia, stick to that and invest in that specialization. Thank you, Thank you very much. That's brilliant.